It's a privilege to be with you once again. I, I look forward to these uh, times of coming down and, and uh, fellowshipping with you. Uh, we pray for you and, and know that God has exciting things in store for this congregation. God is good and he has preserved you all for a reason. And we look forward to seeing what that is going to be. Uh, this morning, we have the privilege of doing the Lord's Supper. And what I oftentimes like to do, I've done this numerous times throughout ministry opportunities, is that the entire service be devoted to the sacrament. Uh, rather than just have a sermon and kind of tack on the, the Lord's Supper at the end, we want to spend the entire time thinking about the Lord's Supper. One of the things to warn you to begin as we begin this journey, uh, the basis of the Lord's Supper we find in the Old Testament. And so that's where we're going to begin. You've got to understand, brothers and sisters, that the cross was the center of all of history. The Old Testament believer stood on one side of the cross. The New Testament believer stands on the other side. They believed in the promise that He was coming. We believe in the fact that He came. Same faith, same Savior. They looked forward to His coming. We look back to the fact that He came. And so keep that in mind as we enter into this time together this morning. Uh, it's our privilege to be studying the very Word of God. Therefore, out of respect and reverence for the author of Scripture, I would ask you to stand for the reading of Scripture this morning. And we'll begin in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, and if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without peri, excuse me, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. 
and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep a feast. Let's pray. Father, we pray for guidance and wisdom as we approach the Word this morning. We pray, O oh Father, that You would prepare us as we come to the table, that we would understand better the significance of what we're doing, and that as a result, we would be blessed. Father, we commit this time to You, for it's in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm not sure if you all remembered in the midst of all the trick-or-treating and the ghosts and the goblins and all that were scurrying across the neighborhoods on Friday night that October 31st, 1517, was the beginning of one of the greatest revivals in the church of Jesus Christ as Martin Luther, confronted because of the selling of indulgences in his area, you know, he was pastoring in the Wittenberg area and uh, the Pope needed to raise some money, so he sent John Tetzel, his greatest indulgence seller, uh, to Germany to try to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. And with these indulgences, you see, you could buy your way out of purgatory. The heretical doctrine that there's a place between heaven and hell where we go to finish paying for our sins. Guys, if that's true, what has happened to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ which paid for all of our sins? But in those days, the church had slipped far from the truth. Luther enraged because of some of the people in his congregation had bought these indulgences thinking that it would be a benefit to them because they were sold a bill of goods with phrases like, as soon as a coin rings in the chest, a soul flies up to heavenly rest. They thought they were helping themselves out spiritually. This enraged Luther because he had come to know that salvation is through faith and faith alone. And that drove him to write what is known as the 95 Theses, 95 issues that he wanted to debate. And he nailed this piece of paper on Christ Church door in Wittenberg. This marked the beginning of what we call today the Reformation. It was not Luther's idea to start a new church. He wanted to reform the church, bring it back to Scripture. Thus, one of the themes of the Reformation became sola scriptura, scripture 
alone is our final authority. That Reformation obviously flourished through history. We know names like John Calvin and John Knox. We trace our heritage back to that. May we be as strong and as bold as these men who stood up for what they believed. And that concept of sola scriptura is critical in that process because we believe that the Scripture is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all Scripture is inspired by God. That word literally means breathed. Breathed by God. And that description is given to us in 2 Peter chapter 1 as Peter within the context of talking about the, 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 the transfiguration. And you know, when I think about the ministry of Jesus, and I think about the different events in that ministry, the transfiguration in which, and it's interesting, whenever anything really unique happened, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. And they were with him when his body was transfigured and, and, and Moses and Elijah showed up and, and out, of the cla- out of the sky they hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Seems like that would have been an experience that would have really had an impact on us. And yet Peter, within the context of talking about this experience, says, but listen, we have something more sure as a light shining in the darkness to which we need to pay great heed. For know that no Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke from God. Oh, that's that beautiful picture of of, uh, uh, Paul not sitting around thousands of years ago and deciding all of a sudden I'm going to write some inspired things that people are going to be blessed by. No, it's a picture of God sending the Holy Spirit to so possess these men, the authors of Scripture, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, so that they wrote exactly what God wanted written. The picture of moved in the Greek is the, is the scene of, of wind catching the sails of a ship and propelling it across the water. So the Holy Spirit propelled these men so they wrote exactly what God wanted written. Sola Scriptura. 66 books of the Old and the New Testament. The inspired, infallible Word of God. As a result, because of sola scriptura, we understand that they're not the multitude of sacraments that you have in Roman Catholicism, but there are two. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of them find their basis in the Old Testament. Again, brothers and sisters, please don't fall into the trap of looking at the Old and New Testament as two completely different things. We really can't understand the New without the Old. And we don't see the beauty and the fullness of the Old without the New. They go together. 
Again, same faith in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints stood looking forward to His coming, believing in the promise. We look back to the fact that He came, which begs an interesting question when you think about to whom much is given, much will be required. Boy, how much faith did those folks in the Old Testament have compared to all that we've experienced and the reality of the fact that Jesus came to whom much is given, much will be required. The Lord's Supper. Exodus 12, Passover feast. The nation of Israel was living in Egypt at this time. You know your history. You know, Jacob had been sold into, excuse me, Joseph had been sold into slavery. I guess I was thinking of Jacob because he was a lousy dad. Remember, dysfunctional family. You know, Joseph, coat of many colors, all that kind of stuff. Uh, disruption between the whole family. Joseph's in, in Egypt. The story of becoming second in, in command only to Pharaoh. Uh, as a result, the, the brothers come down because of Joseph's wisdom. Uh, they end up all moving down there because there was no famine there because of Joseph's wisdom and saving all the food, all this kind of stuff. So, they were there now. There rose a Pharaoh who did not know of Joseph. So, several generations later, and boy, how, how, how often does this happen in our own lives? Generationally, as we, as we lose sight of things, as we lose important principles. Significant people. So it was a bad time in the nation of Israel. Moses had been raised up as leader, but remember he had to flee because he killed, uh, killed an Egyptian and was afraid that they were going to find out about it. And so he had to flee. And so he was out in the desert being trained to be a leader by raising sheep. When he sees a burning bush, but what's unique about this bush is it's not consumed. And so he's, he's drawn to it. And out of the bush he hears, Moses, take off your sandals, for the ground on which you stand is holy. And it was holy because the holy God was there. Moses becomes the leader. And if you read the dialogue between what God was telling Moses to do and all the excuses Moses came up with to try to avoid being the leader. But he was God's man. So God sent him back. And you know the issues of the plagues as you had the gods of Egypt basically battling against the one true God of the universe. The Creator, Redeemer God. Triune God. And at each point, with the plagues, you have that conflict between the gods of Egypt and that one true God until you come to the last one, which is a plague in which the angel of death was going to fly over all the houses in Egypt. And there would be death. The eldest child in each one of those houses, except... And this is the description that we have in Exodus chapter 12. As Moses is to give instruction 
to the children of Israel, to God's people who were living in this land of bondage. And that instruction included taking an unblemished lamb. In other words, a perfect lamb. And they had to to prepare that lamb in a specific way, directions that God had given to them. And part of that preparation was that they were going to take the blood of the lamb and they were going to put spots of that blood on both of the doorposts and one on the lintel. So you had two on the sides and one in the top. And they were told to be sure that when they ate, they ate in a hurry and that they'd be dressed and ready to leave right away. And as we know the story, when the angel came over and the Pharaoh's house was afflicted, you know, that's when he released the Israelites to leave. That's why they were to eat in a hurry and be ready to roll. This portion ends with a statement in verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day. Now this is before any of this happened. And the Lord is saying to these people, this is going to be a day that you're going to remember and you're going to celebrate it. It's a memorial. And as we know from further study, this involved their Passover feast. And everyone were to do the exact same preparation as what is done here, as what is described here in Exodus chapter 12. And during the meal, the youngest son would get up and say, Dad, why do we do this? And that would give the father the opportunity to do what? Relate the entire story in terms of how God had saved His people out of bondage in the land of Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And they could recount the whole story in terms of all of the plagues that had, that, that had uh, uh, taken place. And, and then this final night when they were released and when they would relate the story, please remember, they would also give an account of what happened at the Red Sea. As the Egyptian army was closing fast behind them, and the Red Sea was in front of them. There was no way they could go through that or over it. It was too big. And yet God saved His people as the waters were drawn back and the children of Israel went through and stood on the banks on the other side and watched the Egyptian army destroyed as the waters came rushing back together. And then they broke into a song of praise. A praise for their God because of what He had done for them. That was the memorial. So that they were reminded every year it's years later Jesus sends two disciples out to a man man's house and tells him that or tell this man let him know that the master is coming to eat in your extra room we're going to have the Passover feast together 
So the disciples go and they go to they they come to the man whom Jesus had told them to to uh, to to ask for the room and, and and the man had the room for them and they were all ready to go and they're up there and they're celebrating the feast. We call this the upper room. Upper room discourse is what you have in John. 13, 14, 15, 16, beautiful discussion on the night in which Jesus was betrayed as he sought to prepare his disciples for what was going to happen. And as they ate together, it's within this setting that Jesus takes the bread and he shares it with them and he tells them to eat it because this is my body. See, the transition from the Lamb. You remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who comes to save His people from their sins. Jesus Christ is that sacrificial Lamb. And so when the disciples ate that bread... They were following the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that they were actually taking Jesus' arm and taking a bite out of it. Even though the early church was accused of being cannibalistic because of practicing the Lord's Supper. But it was the fact that the bread represented the body of the Lord Jesus Christ that was going to be given for them. And that the drink represented the blood of the covenant. And thus the Passover feast transitioned from the Old Testament looking forward to Jesus to the New Testament. Jesus was there. He had come. The Lamb of God who was going to save his people from their sins. Thus the institution of what we refer to as the Lord's Supper. It finds its roots in the Passover. It finds its roots in the fact that Jesus saved his people from their sins. He saved them from bondage. And he set them aside to be his. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're to do this again and again and again until He returns. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is one of the sacraments that the church of Jesus Christ is to, in, is to involve themselves with frequently. Obviously, the other sacrament, baptism, can only be done when you're dealing with infants or you're dealing with people converted. Recently converted. But the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, why did they have it? Why did they establish the Passover as a memorial? Because every year the dad got to tell the story of what God had done to save his people. Why? 
the Lord's Supper as we take it is the opportunity to be reminded of what Jesus Christ has done for us because brothers and sisters, we get so busy and we get so distracted and our minds just wander all over the place that we can forget. And we can lose sight of the significance of what our Master has done for us. And it's hard for me to understand how, how churches can have it once a quarter and consider themselves a healthy church. Personally, I'd love to have it every Sunday. And I, I know the argument, oh, the more you have it, you know, it becomes familiar and all that kind of stuff. But hey, we need to be reminded about what Jesus Christ has done every Sunday. Plus, hey, if, uh, if John Calvin wanted it every Sunday, we ought to want it every Sunday, right? That was just being facetious. It says frequently, frequently, we need to partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's our privilege today. Praise God as we prepare to go to the table.